0: So tonight I wanna continue with this theme. We've been talking about cultivating an awareness-oriented practice instead of an object-oriented practice using the teachings of Saito Utejaniya and others And uh, remembering that this is a skillful means, it's in the service of the mind realizing freedom from clinging. So it isn't so much that this style of practice an awareness oriented practice um, has some stake in a particular view like, All there is, is awareness. Awareness is our true self. So that's why we do an awareness-oriented practice. So it's not saying that at all. It's just saying that it can be quite skillful to do an awareness-oriented practice, skillful in the sense that it can support the mind realizing that freedom from clinging, realizing that deep, pervasive habit, realizing freedom from that deep, pervasive habit to cling or to struggle with objects of experience. So I'm going to use tonight, uh, among other things, a sheet that Steve Armstrong put together summarizing some of the teachings of Saito Utejaniya and his own perspectives on practice that I found really helpful. He used it at... Uh, the summer retreat that I taught with him at IMS about a month ago, we handed it out to all the retreatants. And he begins his sheet with something that Sayada Utejaniya says all the time. He says that the yogis, the retreatants, or people who are practicing, have three responsibilities. Sometimes he'll add a fourth, which is to relax. (laughs) But besides the overarching instruction to relax, he has three basic responsibilities of practitioners. The first is to hear and apply right view. And uh, it always has to begin as information because one of the definitions of wrong view Is that it doesn't know it's wrong view and it has a way of operating in the mind that keeps confirming itself. So for example, self-centeredness as an example of wrong view. When my mind is operating with a self-centered point of view, even if I, uh, somehow hear, you know, that Self-centered view is wrong. I'll take that in a self-centered way. I'm so stupid that I'm operating with a self-centered view. I should really cultivate a non-self-centered view. So you can make everything gets turned into just another self-drama. That's really the characteristic of wrong view. It can't get outside of itself. So in, in all the Buddhist traditions, not just, uh, um, Theravada Buddhism, there's a real emphasis on getting good information. You know, it's why in the tradition, the Buddha, this person who lived 2500 years ago, is, uh, such an object of devotion because it's the information that he provided that allows us then to look at wrong view with new eyes and possibly get some space or some freedom from it in a way that wouldn't really be possible for almost all of us without that information. So you might know this, but in case you don't, in the Theravada tradition, at least in the classical uh, teachings of the Buddha, We could never become a Buddha in this lifetime because a Buddha by definition is someone who realizes these truths and articulates them without the help from a previous teacher. But because we have the support, these teachings are still alive, have been recorded and are being passed down. So we can be fully awake, we can be arhats as it's called, same understanding as a Buddha, but Because we've had the help of the articulation, it's a little easier for us. So we don't get that classification of Buddha. Because the Buddha is someone who comes to this understanding, this view, on their own. So it gets lost. Now, you know how the in the Buddhist tradition they're really into these vast scopes of time. So according to the Buddhist tradition, there have been many, many, many Buddhas. But then, after a long, long time, the teachings of that particular Buddha is forgotten. And then people remain unaware of this teaching, these teachings, until the next Buddha arises. And in the meantime, there are a lot of what are called Pacheta Buddhas, which are people who have the full understanding on their own, but can't teach. They don't have the personality that allows them to articulate what's happened to them. So they're like these, you know, special people who uh, seem really happy, but can't really tell you what they did to become really happy <laughs> or what's going on in their heart, in their mind. Nice to be around, but not necessarily like can sort of guide us. So then when another buddha appears and it's a big deal because they what's called in this tradition, you know, they set the wheel of dharma in motion. So that's why the buddha's first talk is a big deal. And so in the tradition, you know, it's said, just a myth maybe, who knows, uh that when he first gave his his first talk And one of the five people hearing it had deep insight, first stage of awakening it's called. Then the earth shook because it was such a big deal. And all the beings in all the realms somehow felt affected that something had been set in motion. So they make, uh, symbolically or mythologically, they make a big deal out of this articulation. So we need to hear and then apply right view. And in the tradition, wisdom is thought of in these three ways. First, we hear it as information, and then we memorize it and think about it. We reflect on it until we become somewhat independent on an intellectual level, like we're fluent. We can repeat it back to ourselves. We understand it intellectually, how it makes sense intellectually. It's rational. And then the third is actual insight. So we see the truth of that right view directly, immediately in our experience. So as information, which, you know, we have, it's like it's useful. We don't really know why it's useful or what it's about. Then we think about it. We begin to reflect on it. We begin to own it on that intellectual level. You could share, you could talk about it with somebody else. And then that intellectual fluency, it doesn't need to be, you don't need to be an academic to have this level. And I'll I'll go in to detail about, you know, what is meant, at least as Saito Uteginiya talks about it, what is meant by right view. And then direct experiential knowledge or wisdom. So the first job, that we have as practitioners is to hear and to reflect upon and apply right view until it's a direct intuitive insight and so the easy one of the easy ways to hear right view is that um, everything is the movement of nature, everything is a natural process or natural processes, everything is unfolding as a natural process, there's nothing outside of these natural processes. These natural processes unfold lawfully, cause and effect. But in a very complex way, so just because it, because they are conditional, doesn't mean we can understand what's going to happen next. But whenever we look deeply, we see that fact that it's conditional, lawful, is always confirmed. And when we don't see the lawfulness of something that's unfolding, it's only because for whatever reason, we can't see everything that's at play to understand the lawfulness of what's happening. You know, something surprising might happen and then we call it magic or we call it, uh, you know, somehow extraordinary. God intervened in some way. But uh, the Buddha was really clear. He made this a central teaching the conditionality of all things, the lawfulness of how it's all unfolding. Everything is a natural process. So now, you've heard this a lot, all of you have been around enough, that you've heard the information of right view, and probably everybody here to some degree has thought about it and is somewhat fluent with that, like could tell yourself, could remind yourself, like. One of the questions we want to ask ourselves to increase interest, clarify what's happening is, so there's an experience, maybe let's say we're aware of some thought in the mind and emotion in the mind. So we might just ask the question, well, is this personal or is this a natural process being known? And we're not expecting somebody to answer that question but it just helps to clarify how the mind observes or is mindfully aware of this mental content, contact, content, or this mental activity, this thinking. Is it personal? Or is it this, is this a conditional unfolding, a natural process? The mind is a natural process, the thinking mind, worrying mind, as a natural process. You see we can see it both ways. I can definitely see, observe my thinking as a personal process. This is me thinking. I'm thinking and I'm hearing what I'm thinking. And I can also now, because of training, observe thinking as a impersonal natural process. Well it's just thoughts. And Understand and even see to some degree, but whether I see clearly or not the supporting conditions for that thinking, I know it's lawful. I know it's arisen because of causes and conditions. It continues because of supporting causes and conditions. And when there aren't any more supporting causes and conditions, that particular line of thinking will cease. That it's a movement of nature following its own particular momentum, playing itself out in its own particular way. So, this is one of our jobs for the next uh, seven days, I suppose, or so. We need to keep hearing, sometimes we hear it from me, sometimes you hear it from reading the Saida's book, sometimes you hear it because you tell yourself right view again, on the level of information and you reflect on it, think about it, think about it, we call this contemplation, so right thinking in a Buddhist sense is thinking that is turning the attention to the experience itself, so it's a reflect, reflective or con, uh, contemplative thinking where we're using this information, a thought, and we're checking it out, how it relates to actual experience. So it's a, a dance between the concepts, the information, and the actual activity of mind. So it isn't uh, philosophy that's somehow removed, but it's grounding, being grounded in our experience. And this sets up insight where there's a switch in allegiance, where the mind is dependent on the thought and trying to see if experience fits that to the mind's intuitive understanding of experience, the way it is, dominates not the thought, not the concept. So the trust or the confidence doesn't come because it makes a lot of sense intellectually. Because you've seen it directly. So if you've you know walked on the driveway, cut a little to the left and then taken that country road, and walked a certain distance and seen the lake that's over there in that direction, you know it's like that's no longer information like it might make sense to you that there's a lake over there, you know, if you hear, a lot of people talking about it. You could have a lot of confidence because of what you've heard. But once you've walked there, you know, it's about a mile away or so, maybe a little bit more, and seen it, well, then you know. It doesn't matter if someone says, you know, there's not really a lake over there because it's direct experience. So you don't need anybody else's confirmation so this is just an example of insight. So that's our first job. We need to hear and apply right view. Then the second one, Saito is uh, always talks about, is we need to bring awareness, establish awareness. And here, awareness doesn't mean to be conscious, because. Everybody is conscious of the six sense gates. I mean, even very simple animals are conscious of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and some kind of mental activity. Their mental activity may be quite different than ours, but still, they have some mental activity, some memory, some perception process that they can be, that they're conscious of. So when we use awareness or mindful awareness, we have to remember in this context of being Buddhist practitioners in this lineage, when we use the word awareness or mindful awareness, we're really talking about this process that sometimes we call practice. Or maybe more technically, you could think of it in terms of the five spiritual faculties, which is really like an engine the engine of practice or the activity of practice. And it involves five things. And this will make a lot of sense. So when we're talking about awareness, establishing awareness, we're talking about the presence of faith or confidence. Like there's a purpose for being aware. There's a motivation, a wholesome motivation. That's the faith, which allows for an engagement, an effort. I'll talk about these a little bit. Mindfulness, so there's a connecting to the experience of the body and mind. It's here and now, which leads to steadiness and unwaveringness in the awareness, which brings clarity. The steadiness brings clarity. The not wavering makes the awareness clear, which allows for the mind to see things as they are—wisdom. So this is a classic uh, list in the way the Buddha taught the five spiritual faculties. When they get highly developed, they call the five spiritual powers—faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom—and to think about this as an engine or the activity of practice. So when you tell your friends, I was on a retreat and I practiced for nine days, then what you're really saying that, saying to them is, I was, you know, working with my mind, working with a, ver- a variety of skillful means, so that there were these activities of faith and energy and mindfulness and steadiness, as another word for concentration, and insight wisdom, right? Initially, wisdom is just the investigation, the interest, and then that opens up into seeing what hasn't been seen before. So then it's insight. So, this is what we're doing when we say, you know, establishing awareness. We're bringing to, to the fore these five qualities. And then... The third job for us practitioners, according to Sido Utejini is to persevere in the in the sustaining of awareness, or in the sustaining of our practice, to not forget. Like Nhat Han has a great line. He says, "The only enemy, or forgetfulness, is the only real enemy." I really like that because it can seem like there's a lot of dangerous things. But to put it in that way, the only enemy is forgetfulness. Forgetting to relate to this moment as the ground or the context for practice, this practice of awakening, the arising of the five faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So again, faith is the uh, the inclination that there is something wholesome to be realized. So it's a kind of humility, right? That there's something to be known, something liberating to be known that isn't yet known. And you see how that naturally motivates energy. Effort. And what does that effort do? Well, it, uh, takes responsibility for the mind. How the mind is. Basically clarifying or removing the hindrances from the mind. Right? Because what, uh, Energy is about, you know, coming out of the, uh, you don't really have any faith unless there's some wisdom. You know, you, you, we've had to have heard something that's inspiring. And it, and it resonates maybe because of something from long ago, but we're inspired about the possibility of freedom that we haven't yet realized. A sense of release. From what's heavy. And we're motivated. And it's not just a blind motivation, it's somehow understanding the importance of the mind and whatever it is that we're pursuing. So the effort then is to purify the mind, to begin to set emotion in motion a mind that can do the work of awareness, can see things as they are. So we take responsibility for the dullness, for the distractedness, for the greediness, the aversion, the fear, all the different distorting forces in the mind. What can be done to remove fear from the mind? What can be done? And it isn't, it's, it's just on the way or in the way of, in the direction of clarity. How can I support the clarity of mind? Putting aside whatever it is that appears to be hindering clarity, right? So the very definition of right effort in a technical sense is removing from the mind what hinders clarity. And when that has been, when it all has been removed, That's the beginning of what we call concentration. The mind becomes steady precisely because the hindrances have been removed. So we begin to remove the hindrances, which allows awareness to connect more honestly, directly with the mind and body. That's the mindfulness piece. We have faith that inspires the effort to clear the mind of the hindrances, whatever is hindering clarity. As the hindrances go away, the awareness is better able to connect with the truth of the mind and body, the reality of the way it is. With more practice, there's more and more steadiness. The knowing of the mind and body becomes more and more steady, less and less of the mind getting lost in concepts, thinking about, this and not knowing that it's thinking right thinking is just another natural phenomena like hearing smelling tasting touching but it's particularly seductive so often when there's thinking the mind forgets it's just thinking and it's what we say lost in the thought caught up or identified with the thought so there's no wisdom then it's literally in that bubble it has become what it's thinking Instead of aware, it's just a thought. It's just a thought about blank. So energy, effort removes the hindrances, allowing for more continuity of mindfulness, allowing for a greater steadiness and unwavering of attention, which allows for the mind going beyond the influence of concept and seeing, having a moment, or moments of seeing things as they are, changing, unsatisfactory, impersonal, and uh, seeing the reality, or beginning to intuit the reality of non-grasping, the possibility of the mind being intimate without grasping, without being pushed around by the experiences that are coming and going. So intuiting, beginning to intuit, or having glimpses of freedom, a different way the mind can be in the sense world. So there, intimate with the sense world, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, (coughs) thinking, but not pushed around, not in a grasping or reactive relationship. So that's a moment of insight. Moments of insight not only clarify the way it is, but have the flavor of freedom or liberation, the taste of non-grasping or the quality of non-grasping. So this is our engine. So when Saida says that we establish awareness and then persevere in sustaining awareness... It's like we're revving up this engine, we're trying to figure out how it works, how to get it going, what, what shuts it off, what causes it to fall apart, so then we have to put it all back together again. And that's so much of what we're all in the middle of right now. There will be periods of the day where these five faculties will be humming along, have some momentum, or even in a short, for a short period of time, a few seconds, just be really beautifully and balanced and powerful, and then immediately fall apart. And because it was so short, we don't even know what just happened, let alone how to get back there, what were the supporting causes for it. So a lot of that uh, stumbling into periods of balance and clarity, and falling right out of them, and stumbling into them, and, falling, and not really getting the lay of the land, and then over a long period of time, getting more and more clear that this coming together, the five faculties itself, is a natural phenomenon. There are supporting conditions and there are hindering conditions to the development of the five faculties. But without this continuity, this perseverance, like not only setting in motion the five faculties but keeping them in motion, keeping them strong and steady, without that, we don't really have insight. Sayadaw uses the example, you know, if you're watching a television series and you keep missing episodes, you don't really know what's going on. How are you going to figure out who did it? <laughs> you know, you have to be there for all the pieces. And it's the same thing with... Uh, the continuity of our practice. What can really help um, is using questions to help sustain this engine of the five faculties. And I mentioned that I would bring some of them up tonight and a lot of these you've heard or come up with on your own. But remember, the, the basic uh, point of the five faculties is to have enough steadiness that the mind can investigate the nature of the mind itself. So often the questions are directed toward the mind. Something as simple as, what's the mind doing now? Now remember, when you ask yourself, what, what's the mind doing now? It's not a judging thought. <laughs> It's not about like, I mean, I know it always seems this way to me, like, I must be doing something wrong if I'm asking myself, what's the mind doing now? But we want to try to ask that question without the presumption that we're doing something wrong or that whatever we're doing is wrong. Because it isn't about whether it's right or wrong, it's about whether the mind can be interested in what the mind is doing now. And to help that, you could say, well, is it skillful or unskillful? Because I'm interested. Not judging, but I'm just interested. Is what it's doing skillful or unskillful? And remember, it's never about getting an answer. It's never about feeling you have to answer these questions you ask. It's just about opening or clarifying the way it is. So, for example, if I ask, you know, what the mind what's the mind doing? Is what it's doing skillful or unskillful? Then, you know, because of how my mind has learned and been trained, then it's really observing what's being set in motion. It, are things, is the heart getting contracted or tight, identified? Or is the heart, mind, body becoming more released, lighter, or easy? Simple questions like, because it's so common, is there greed in the mind? Can just highlight it. Now you can ask questions about positive qualities. Is there calm in the mind? Is the mind kind or pushy, aggressive? Is the mind afraid? Is the knowing colored by fear or confidence? One that I've used a lot is, is this activity of the mind or this activity of the body that's being known now, is it personal or is it natural, a natural process? Let's just see how it really keeps the interest alive, these kinds of questions Sida has a nice uh, formula for, he, he uses it specifically for aversion, but you could use it for greed probably too. So you have a sense that there's aversion or fear in the mind. How does this aversion, how does this fear make the body or mind feel now? So then you're looking at that, how it makes it feel. And then To invite a more close look, what is the mind resisting internally? So this activity of fear or aversion is actually the surface preventing the mind from seeing or feeling something that it doesn't want to see. So what's behind it, in other words? What is the mind resisting internally? What does the mind not want to feel, not want to see here? And then once the mind opens and starts to see something that it wasn't seeing a moment before, then it begs the question, well, the aversion or the fear that was just there, why was the mind doing that? Was it necessary? Is it necessary? So you really see that the surface activity of aversion or fear is no longer necessary because it was all a way of avoiding seeing this. But now you're seeing this. So is that aversion necessary? Is that greed necessary? So for greed it might be, the underlying thing may be a sense of lack. So there you are lusting after something or someone or craving something. And then there's enough awareness, enough steadiness, How does this craving feel in the mind? How does it feel in the body? And you're doing exactly what the thinking about craving is trying to prevent you from doing. You're actually willing to feel that the craving hurts. Oh, This is how it feels. It's unpleasant like this. So you're grounding in the simple truth that craving or aversion is unpleasant like this. Grounding. Going beneath the level of the activity of anger, which you first recognize, oh there is anger, or there is craving, into the ouch of it, oh, it feels like this, it hurts like this. And then once there, with the sort of underlying sense of lack for greed, or underlying sense of fear for aversion, fear of not being in control for example, then we can ask, well, why aversion? Why craving? Is it is it necessary? No, it's not necessary. So that might just become apparent to the mind if you ask. Remember, these questions are never about demanding anything. It's always about investigation. Saita says something like, Wisdom never believes, wisdom investigates. So the questions are just ways to open up the experience, to illuminate what's already here. So we're not demanding what should be here or shouldn't be here, but just using questions to open it up. Because the habit of the mind is to be superficial and to tell ourselves what's happening based on a superficial looking. We walk in a room, we see some people, and what do we do? We draw conclusions. This is a cool scene, but this is not a cool scene. And then we start the other experiences we're having are made to fit that particular conclusion we've just drawn. So we have to go beyond this tendency of our mind. So I mentioned before that this dharma that we're opening to is the study of nature and natural processes. All occurs in the body and all that occurs in the body and mind is nature, natural, natural process. So there's really nothing outside of that. This aspect of nature or the natural process Because it may seem like um, it's something to be figured out, you know, that things are a natural process. So just be willing to hold it as information and to reflect on it. Is this a natural process? So whatever is predominant in your experience from time to time, during your sits, during your walking, during your meals. Just ask, is this a natural process? Whatever it is that's being known in that moment. Or is it personal? Is it me or mine? And so a natural process, according to the Buddha, is apparent here and now, timeless. It encourages investigation. It's inherently interesting because, the next point he makes, it's liberating. So it draws the mind in to be experienced for oneself, meaning it's our, like I was saying, I said it's subjective experience. Doesn't matter about anybody else, realizable by the wise. So uh, Steve and Saida sums up our practice In every moment something is being known. So, you know, in a way we can check that off. I don't have to know phenomena. Every moment something's being known. And so our practice, this engine of the five faculties, or what we call awareness, mindful awareness practice, then its job is to recognize what's being known, to recognize what's being known with wisdom, with right view. right. That's our first job as a practitioner, to hear about right view and to activate it by understanding it intellectually and then bringing it to bear with this practice of being aware of what's happening, and being aware of what's happening with right view. Something is always being known. Can awareness, this practice, know that something is being known? And know that something is being known with right view? Is this a natural process? Or is it self? Is this this stuff happening? Everything happening on its own due to causes and conditions? So even now, you know, sitting, listening to a talk, Is this self, or is this a natural process being known? Noticing how there's always something being known. This whole dynamic we call our practice, mindful awareness, it is always about the body and the mind. There's never anything else that is being known. At home for the Sunday and Wednesday groups I've been talking about the six Sense Spheres, what the Buddha calls the All, one of the quotes I've read recently in the Sunday and Wednesday groups. Practitioners, I will teach you the All. And what is the All? It is the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and touches, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called the al- the all. So all there is is mind and body. But just because where everybody is conscious of these six sense gates, doesn't mean they have mindful awareness. This engine of awakening, of faith and energy, to put aside the hindrances, mindfulness. The recollecting of the mind and body as something being known, the steadiness with that, and insight. That's what makes us practitioners, instead of just a creature that's sensitive, that has conscious or sentient sentience, right? There are a lot of sentient beings, not too many practitioners. So we're, we have this engine, this mindful awareness engine, and it's as if we're collecting data points. But now the data points are data points uh, from the perspective of wisdom or right view, not self-view. And at some point, those data points are going to overwhelm all the other data points we've been collecting through our lives, maybe, or for sure this life, with wrong view. So, just think now, how many data points do we have that have come about through wrong view? Observing things as being near mine, being personal, a lot. We have a lot of bad data points. And so... Wrong view naturally arises. It isn't that there's a human being who's stupid or being bad, and that's why he or she has wrong view. Wrong view naturally, appropriately arises out of bad data. Bad data arises from being aware with wrong view. You see how this is called samsara. It just reproduces itself over and over again. So now we're changing the game. We're bringing in right view. We've got some information we didn't have before because there was this awakened being who could articulate what he came to understand. And then there's just been this lineage of women and men who have passed these teachings along. And now we have this information. We're curious enough to begin to play with it. And then we begin to See, be mindfully aware from the point of view of right view, as best we can. It's not perfect, of course. So the data that we're collecting, the experiences that are being known, now have a different flavor. Now, at some point, this pep- I'm bring- describing this because people get confused. They, they have a sense that there's right view operating, but they still see their mind getting caught in aversion. From a self-centered point of view, or greed from a self-centered point of view, and they don't understand that. But it might be because, you know, they've got 30% good data points and 70% bad data points. So the view that's going to win out, even though there may be right view, it's only got 30% momentum. And there's another view with 70% momentum. And we have to be respectful of this natural dynamic. It takes time for the tide to switch when right view dominates the mind. And so action, what I think, what I say, what I do, starts to come out of what has the momentum, right view. But right now, what has the momentum most of the time is self-centered view, wrong view. But now because we're practicing, we're seeing wrong view with awareness with mindfulness. But it doesn't mean it's going to go away just because we're seeing it, because it has a lot of momentum. So we have to be patient with it. Saida says, Please don't make the mistake of thinking that there's a better object out there than what you are currently experiencing. And then later, another time says, Because we want to learn about the nature of the mind and objects, we don't try to calm the mind down or try to remove objects. We don't interfere or control but observe. And another time, awareness is noticing everything that is happening. Object is also happening. Knowing is also happening. Sensation is also happening. Thinking is also happening. It's all new, new, new. Now we have to remember this fourth instruction. So we write, view, awareness, continuity of awareness, and probably the most important, relax. Not relax in the sense of, oh, it will just take care of itself. It won't just take care of itself. But because the whole process is is about understanding, being tight gets in the way of understanding. Being tight always means there's a defilement. The mind is being tormented by greed or aversion. We wouldn't be tight otherwise. So we can't, you know, we, out of habit we trust being tight because we've equated being tight with caring about something. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,